Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What do the happiest retirees know? And what separates the happy group from the unhappy group? It isn't just one thing. It's a list of 30 life habits, financial habits, social habits, health habits, and even family habits that are all ingredients in the recipe for a happy retiree. We could also look at it this way, 30 things you should do and 30 things you should avoid. I've been studying these habits for the better part of a decade. Countless research surveys, studies and projects, countless analysis and writing about these topics. And I've compiled all of it in a new project, I guess really a book, called What the Happiest Retirees Know. What do they know? 10 Habits for a Healthy, Secure, and Joyful Life. Now, this isn't a six-hour narration of the book, but I do want to highlight some of the most impactful parts within these 10 categories or 10 habits. And we're going to summarize them here in today's episode. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. I think I'll just start out as to why this study of happiness habits to emulate and habits that lead to an unhappy retirement has become such a calling for me. I think, first of all, I'm a huge believer in finding the outcomes we seek as humans, in this case, general retirement happiness or joy, and then reverse engineering who already has it figured out. And we can do that today through researching these groups. Access to finding these families and being able to ask them in-depth questions about their financial and life habits is perhaps easier today than it's ever been. We do this through modern research tools, technology companies that bring in thousands or even hundreds of thousands of data points And then our team here at the Retire Sooner podcast distills that down and makes sense of it. But why this has been a problem that has been maybe stuck in my brain forever, and it's something I've always been trying to solve, maybe goes back to me being a kid in Southeast Pennsylvania, living in what I still think is a dichotomous region of the United States, Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Which, by the way, if you may be seeing the mayor of East Town, or maybe it's just mayor of East Town on HBO with Kate Winslet, that show is filmed in Southeast Pennsylvania. And they picked a town that doesn't look all that great just to see the drabness of a Southeast Pennsylvania town. There's a couple of locations in the movie, but one of them is Coatesville, Pennsylvania, where there's a giant steel company. When I was a kid, it used to be called Lucan Steel. 
It was driving through there a few months ago, and it's been purchased by one of these massive steel conglomerates. I believe it's Accelerator Metal, which is a European steel company. So it's no longer Lucan Steel, but it's still Lucan Steel to me. It's drab. It's a really kind of a not a great looking town. Anytime you see big steel factories and smokestacks and rust, chain link fences as you drive by, it just doesn't feel warm and fuzzy. It's not like a trip to grandma's house. But go less than a mile from the center of that town, and you're surrounded by perhaps some of the most beautiful country in the United States. You don't hear people talk about the rolling fields of Coatesville, Pennsylvania, but you may have heard of the glorious and beautiful area of the Shenandoah River Valley in Virginia. It's actually a lot like that in Pennsylvania. Rolling hills, miles and miles of open horse fields, pastures, There's even cattle roaming around a quarter of a mile where my dad's house is in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Rolling hills. In fact, there's a place called the Laurels where my dad to this day does trail rides, literally from his barn to the Laurels, which is a beautiful place full of laurels, which are beautiful plants slash trees in the rolling hills of Coatesville and Chester County. It's also right near Amish country, Lancaster, the heart of witness with Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis was right in Lancaster. In fact, it was filmed at some of the very Amish dairy farms that as a kid, we visited. And that's because my dad was a large animal vet when I was really little. And for years, we made trips to these Amish farms. So here we are in what is still an area of extremes. Rusty old steel factory without a lot of money. The quaintness of the Amish who live as though they were from three centuries ago. They still will not use electricity and will not drive cars. To the 20, 30, 50 million dollar horse farms that surround that area. So as a kid, my mind was in this constant state of pinball between great wealth and let's call it middle to lower middle class America. And then the Amish, triangulated in confusion. The wealthy horse farms nearby, in fact, one of the horse farms was owned by a family who trained Olympic horses. Not just one or two, we're talking about 50, 50 horses, a stable or a barn of 50 horses. Imagine the type of wealth it takes to maintain that. And some of these horses were actually ridden in the Olympics, not just one, but multiple So you're talking about massive, massive wealth and farms all around, horse farms all around, had this similar feel of almost aristocracy. And even though as a kid, I just inherently thought it was better to have lots and lots of money and be rich, it didn't seem as though the really rich families were any happier than the Amish who were living two centuries ago, or even the middle class or lower middle class of Coatesville, PA. In fact, in some cases, it seemed as though middle America was just as happier, even happier than the people that lived on these gorgeous farms. And I think that question mark of does money really buy happiness has always been something that I've tried to figure out. And as a grown up in the world of financial advice and investments and financial planning and helping people try to get to a place of financial freedom. It's just been really important for me to put some data to that. 
and being in the investment industry and studying economics, which is what I majored in at University of North Carolina, I just need some data. Give me some numbers. Give me some charts. Give me some graphs so that I can visually understand the relationship between what one group does and how that translates to higher or lower levels of life satisfaction, happiness, secureness, joyfulness, all the things that my research has been centered around. Of course, I've, I've talked several times here on the show and even interviewed the real-life Chris Gardner, who was played by Will Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness, which is the ultimate story of someone in America with a family doing all the right things that still ended up homeless on the streets. Now, the end of that story is a wonderful one. Chris Gardner made a wonderful living despite having to spend almost two years of his life in homeless shelters and sleeping in the bathroom of the subways in San Francisco. But there's no better example of just how scary and sad it can be when you do run out of money. So there's this element of fear when it comes to running out. Fast forward to the financial crisis here in the United States of really around the world, 2007, 2008, where our economy went into a severe recession, unemployment skyrocketed, the stock market fell over 50%, real estate values collapsed. But during that period of time, there was a group of people that seemed to sail right through that tumultuous economic time. To this day, I think of that group as the truly the happy retiree in America. They weren't worried about their finances because they typically had a mortgage that was zero and a house that was fully paid for. They had enough money saved and they had this great sense of comfort around, as long as I invest this the right way and know some of the basic rules of not running out of money, well, I'm going to sail right through this period of time, even though... Every night for almost two years, there were stories on the nightly news about people losing their homes, getting evicted, being unemployed. That led me to start really buckling down and doing research here in the United States to try to get to the bottom of it. Who were the happy retirees and what did they do? So I did so. I've done almost a half a dozen different studies over the years. An expansive one in 2013, then 2018, 2020, 2021. Not to mention all of the anecdotal stories that I've heard and the families I've talked to and tried to help through hosting financial radio for almost 15 years. And now, of course, the Retire Sooner podcast. I realized if I was able to isolate through a series of questions, who landed into the happy camp and who didn't? And because there's so much data around this, we can ask this whole entire population about how they spend money, how much money they've saved, how much income they have. Do they have a mortgage? If so, how much is left on the mortgage? And then in relation to finances, what does your family life look like? Do you have to financially support your kids? What are your life pursuits you're able to afford now in retirement? What are your core pursuits in the world? What are your social relationships like? close connections or your friendships, and even what has marriage and divorce looked like for you over your lifetime. I even asked this population in one of my research studies that had to do with family and marriage about sex and intimacy. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Once we identified different happiness levels, we were able to break that down into five categories. One, least happy. Five, the most happy. Essentially quintiles, five sections. The way we disseminate or decipher between the happy group and the unhappy group is we take the fours and the fives, the two happiest categories, and we compare that to the behavior of the ones and the twos or the least two happy quintiles and essentially cut out the middle. So the way I like to analyze these relationships is comparing the fours and the fives, which by the way, (laughs) I call HROBs, that stands for happiest retirees on the block, and Robs, which are unhappiest retirees on the block. By the way, I've always wanted one of my books to be called that, Happiest Retiree on the Block, and no publisher has ever liked that. And they scrapped that name and they scratched that name, and I've tried to use that so many times, but it's never made it through. But you'll hear me refer to happy retirees as HROPs, happiest retirees on the block, and Robs, or unhappiest retirees on the block. So put this all together and you end up with this long, almost Italian family recipe that gets passed on from generation to generation with an awful lot of do's and don'ts. And just like a wonderful generational Italian family recipe, you don't need to follow it perfectly. But you do need the main ingredients. And you can pick and choose which ones make sense for you and how much you want to dial one ingredient up or not, or eliminate, double, or add. And those are the habits that we get to in this newest project, which is, I always call it a project, it was just a book (laughs) called What the Happiest Retirees Know. Let's get into what those habits are. Now, there's 10 in the book or 10 chapters that revolve around these habits. On today's episode, I'm not going to go in order how they are in the book, and I'm certainly not going to get to all 30 that you would get to if you were to skip right to the appendix in this new book. But I do want to go in a logical order so that you can get a really good sense of some of the most important pieces in each of the 10 categories. So let's start with money. That's an easy one place to start. Here are a couple of main highlights in the money section. One, happy retirees get to at least $500,000. Number two, They're very close to either having their mortgage paid off or having no mortgage at all. And they have multiple streams of how they generate their income. Once we got back this data, there's certainly always this question around net worth. What's the right number to get to? And yes, more is better for financial comfort, if you will. But through our data, it's really evident that there is a plateauing effect, almost a diminishing marginal happiness relationship when it comes to more money. Meaning that, yes, more money tends to lead to more happiness. Maybe that's because there's more security. Maybe it's more optionality. Maybe it's just less worry about running out. But it is very clear in our data that even though we get big lifts in happiness when we go from, let's say, $100,000 to $250,000, 
or two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars. There's a lot less incremental happiness gain when we go from again, I'm using extreme examples here, from two million dollars to four million dollars. So getting to a certain point or a checkpoint is a really important concept. And that's why I wanted to look at this happiness by liquid net worth in both the average or the mean data and the median data. Remember from statistics class, median is just lining up all your data points, not taking the average, lining up all your data points. In this case, thousands of people reporting their liquid net worth in my research and picking the middle point. And that middle point or that checkpoint that is the inflection point of all our research when it comes to liquid net worth. How much money do you have in the bank? As my kids would say, dad, is it in the bank? And that number from a median perspective is half a million dollars. It's 500,000. Now that's not a small number. And I've gotten chided over the years that saying that, don't tell me I have to get to a half a million dollars just to be happy in America. And I get that. But I've also heard $500,000 isn't nearly enough. I need $2 million at least, Wes, or I need $5 million. And maybe both sides are right. All I'm doing here is reporting back what my research says, and that is this very simply. The inflection point that I've found between the unhappy camp and the happy camp is $500,000. That's the kind of the bare minimum checkpoint we need to get to in America in liquid savings. It's not net worth, but liquid money that you can get to and that can, by the way, can also produce income. Is right at the half a million mark. Now, you look at the data in a slightly different way and look at the average or the mean data, which can get skewed by really wealthy folks from my survey, people that have maybe $10 million in assets, and you get a higher number. The average happy retiree is close to $900,000 in liquid net worth. And I think those are both important numbers to understand. And they've certainly both been a part of how we write about and analyze this data. So a million is great. Maybe five million is even better. Of course it is. More optionality. However, it's just one piece of the equation. Of course, it has to do with how much you need to spend in retirement, which is next on my list. But in a world where I think Wall Street and maybe the media, Susie Orman is an example of this, tells you you need to have a bare minimum of $5 million to think about retiring. And you got to work till you're 70. I think it's actually a better message for America that let's at least start by getting to the 500,000. If you can do that, not only does my research show me that it's plenty of financial resources to land in the happy camp, but I've seen it in real life so many times, hundreds of times. Families, maybe they're from Luke and Steele, they're able to save, save, save and, and hit that really important, let's call it minimum checkpoint. It's still a lot of resources to be able to work with and plenty of money to be a happy retiree. Number two, spending. Of course, the next piece of the equation, no matter how much money you have, if you're outspending it, it doesn't or won't last very long. You could have $5 million saved up, but if you need 500 grand a year or a million dollars a year and you're heavily taxing or utilizing those financial resources, sure, of course, it can run out. It can run out really quickly. So number two, in spending, happy retirees understand, again, this absolutely critical rule called the 4% plus rule. 
We've done an entire episode here on the Retire Sooner podcast around the 4% plus rule. Please, please go back and listen to it. I think it's actually episode four. But as a quick recap, 4%, that 4% level has been a relatively well-documented, understood level of spending from your retirement assets that came from an MIT graduate named William Bingen, who tried to figure out, hey, what's the most money I can take out? What's my max withdrawal rate that I can take and still have this money last a really long retirement? In his case, it was 50 years. He was testing for it and essentially said that the vast, vast majority of the time, let's call it 90% of the time, even in bad market conditions, meaning you retire at a not so great time in a market cycle, you can still take a little over 4% a year adjusted for inflation, provided you have at least 50% in stocks, rebalanced to at least 50% in stocks in any given year and not run out. In fact, worst case scenario, this rule will get you at least 30 years of spending. Again, taking 4% of your starting retirement asset value and adjusting it every single year for inflation, higher and higher and higher. Not long ago, let's call it 30 years after his original research, Bengen came out and said, my math might have been a little bit wrong. In fact, I think it's even 4.5%. So we do an entire section in this book about the 4%, what I now call the 4% plus rule, because the difference between 4% and 45 wouldn't that sound like a lot? Oh, it's 4, 4.5, what's the difference? It's a 12.5% raise. And if you can enter in retirement understanding how that works and the fact that you can take between 4 and really 5% a year, and that's why we call it the 4% plus rule, it's not a static number every single year. It's dynamic, meaning that you can adjust your spending higher in some of the really important years where you want to spend extra money, adjust it lower in some of your slower years where you're not doing as much and maybe the market's not as great. But keeping that 4% plus level as a guideline is a game changer when it comes to understanding your cash flow and having the peace of mind that you're not going to run out of money, but at the same time, utilizing a relatively significant portion in any given year. Which leads me to number three, investing. HROBs are tomorrow investors, meaning that they're not looking at today. They're not looking at this month. They're not even necessarily looking at any given year. They're thinking about tomorrow. They're thinking about the future. And in my book, if you're investing in particularly the United States economy, where we live amongst an army of American productivity, that I believe is the fabric of our nation and our economy that will not go away in our lifetime, that tomorrow, the future is either A, great or amazing, or B, good. And the answer is C, all the above. C is in the two options are either tomorrow's good or it's great. That's why I look at the future of the United States. And to some extent, you have to have that optimism to be a stock investor to begin with. Speaking of stocks, there is no perfect or only a right way to do it. But I see the happiest retirees really understanding and embracing income-oriented investing and in the economic environment and the market environment that we live in today with interest rates so low and have been so low for so long and will likely be so low for so long, 
Investing in stock dividends can provide the steady income that you're going to need in retirement or the happy retiree understands that is much more consistent if you're looking at the dividends that get produced by companies or even the market as a whole or ETFs or exchange-traded funds that also do this. It's a really powerful notion that collectively we've seen companies, let's call it even in just the S&P 500, for the most part, continue to raise what they pay out year after year after year after year. And it's not in a perfectly straight line. Certainly in recessions, that number can go down. But we've also seen even in recessions when that dividend number in aggregate that gets paid out by the S&P 500 typically recovers and snaps back to where it was prior to the recession. And if you can understand that philosophically, that dividend investing gives you some level of steadiness relative to, meaning steadiness in income relative to the value of investments that inherently is going to continue to go up and down almost no matter what, if you're invested in stocks relative to safety assets like bonds, let's say. That's not only a formula that that works financially or can work really well financially. It's a formula that also takes some of the sting and emotion and that heuristic that we've talked about here called loss aversion, at least to some extent out of the equation. And that's very powerful. And ATROBs get it. Now, a lighter topic, number four, curiosity, curiosity habits. I started with money habits because originally when I first started doing this research and I realized that this is beyond just money, the question would, of course, be what's all this money for? What are we saving all this money for? We're saving it for all the things we would love to do when we no longer have to work at a job we don't love. And now you may say, Wes, I love my job. I never work another day in my life. Is if I love my work. Well, that's true. But the reality is only about 20% of America, one in five, really do love their job. Fully engaged in their work is love what you do, good at what you do, meaning, put it all together. It's not a huge percentage of the population. 60% of Americans are kind of take it or leave it at work, which means that there are a lot of other things that they would much rather be doing. By the way, I'm always slightly amused by this statistic. The other one in five, what about the other 20%? That group of Americans hate to work so much, they're trying to bring their company down. They're trying to get their boss fired. They love to see their company dwindle. You know the story. But it also means that 80% of Americans are looking forward to things that are not their job, which gets us to the importance of curiosity. Curiosity may have killed the cat, but a lack of curiosity I think, kills the happy retiree. So I went out and asked, how many core pursuits do you have that you're running towards in retirement? A core pursuit is a hobby on steroids, by my definition. This is something that you live for and you're excited about and you want to get better at or do more of and you want to do it all the time. Here's an example of what's not a core pursuit. I was up in northern Michigan And they're beautiful places, and there's places to hike all over the country, but wonderful places as well to do this in the north. And everyone talks about hiking. It seems like a good idea. So I've gone on a hike or two, but that's about it. Because even though I'll go on a hike once in a while, it's just not a core pursuit of mine. I'm not living to go hike to the waterfall and back. 
Now, I can see why people love it, but it just, for me, it's just okay. I used to love mountain biking. I grew up with it. A friend of mine actually coach lacrosse with is a dad, and he loves mountain biking so much, he coaches a mountain biking team, which I didn't even know was a thing. He showed up to practice the other day with a hole in his shirt. He had wrecked trying to follow these 12, 13, 14-year-olds are now getting massive air, going 35 miles an hour on a dirt road in the woods. He took a spill. Lucky he didn't break anything, but he, he loves it. It's his core pursuit. Me, I'm again, I kind of grew out of mountain biking. I don't want to break a collarbone or my wrist again, but I'll go on a bike ride. In fact, every time I go back home, my dad will say, still as a family, no matter how old we get, hey, let's go for a bike ride, boys. Yay. Okay, let's do that. So again, I'll go for a bike ride. I'll go for a mountain bike ride, but it's just not at the top of my list. So that is not a core pursuit for me. But you start talking about the things that you want to do like every single week. Now that's a core pursuit. If you're a golfer, you know what I mean. You don't golf. If you golf twice a year, you're not a golfer. If you want to golf every single week or twice, and if you're on a golf trip and you're excited that you're playing not just 18 holes in a day, but 36 holes in a day, that's a core pursuit. It's like part of your life. Maybe you're on the board of a charity and you're volunteering. And that cause that you're volunteering for is so important that you agreed to be on the board and you meet every single month and you're talking about it and helping coordinate it and helping raise money and volunteering for this charity. And you're doing it several times a week. That's a core pursuit. Speaking of my dad, he retired about a year and a half ago. And he's the kind of guy that has at, at least 15 core pursuits. It's hard to even keep track of all of them. And I mentioned riding horses, riding horses, like almost every single day. Gardening, twice a day, every single day. Music, he's a guitar player. Guitar, every single day. Now, for me, I love golf. He thinks it's the worst thing in the world. Would never spend a second golfing. So it doesn't matter what they are. It just matters that you have lots of them. In fact, HROBs have 3.6, almost four core pursuits on average, almost four different things that the HROB wants to do all the time. It's a huge part of their life. The Unhappy Group, the UROBs, average 1.9 core pursuits. That means that they have less than two hugely important hobbies on steroids. I don't know if it's the lack of core pursuits that make them unhappy or the fact that they just don't have a burgeoning sense of curiosity, so they just don't have a ton of core pursuits. But what I do know is that curiosity is what drives these core pursuits. Curiosity is almost the cousin of purpose. I want to do this, and I want to get better, and I want to do more, and I want to explore this further, and I want to do new things and create new core pursuits in my life. Podcast episode number 22 was with Tom Vanderbilt, why lifelong learning is something that you need to do as an adult. His book, Beginners, was all about the power of lifelong learning. Do new stuff, no matter how old you are. And even though I don't think it matters what those core pursuits are, just matters that you have them, for what it's worth, number one core pursuit of the happy retiree is volunteering. Travel shows up high on the list as well. About halfway through today's episode, I realized that this is more like two episodes. 10 Habits, even scaled down, is really like two podcasts. So I know today we only got through four of these habits. 
So we're going to wrap up today. And our next podcast, I'll leave you on a cliffhanger, will be the other habits five through 10. In the meantime, all of this is in the actual book, What the Happiest Retirees Know, that's coming out in October. And you can actually pre-order the book. And if you do so, it will give you access to a free companion workbook. Easiest place to do the pre-order would be Amazon. The book is What the Happiest Retirees Know, 10 Habits for a Healthy, Secure, and Joyful Life. Then you head on over to westmoss.com. Right on the homepage, you'll see a link for the companion workbook. If you have a pre-order number, you're good to go. And you'll have access to that free workbook right through westmoss.com. Also, like every other author on the planet, I'd love for you to spread the word. Maybe you have a friend who's trying to get their kids off the payroll. Maybe you have a friend that's trying to decide should they move. Maybe it's just a friend or a sibling or a parent with an adventurous spirit. They're trying to play in their next phase. Maybe it's a friend who just hates work. Maybe it's just someone you're close with in your life that's thinking about retiring. What the happiest retirees know is full of really a decade of studying the habits between these two groups. And I want to land in the happy group, and so do you. So the more people we can help do that, the better. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.